Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, your weekly news and commentary podcast that also does not work for Georgetown Law School. I am Matt Welch, joined by Nick Gillespie, Peter Suderman, Catherine Mangue Ward. Good morning, pals. Howdy. Hey, Matt. Happy Monday. That was very good spacing. So you guys spaced the court just right. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Ron DeSantis serially owning the libs here in a moment. But first, even Cadillac health insurance policies don't generally cover the cost of transport should you need an airlift to a medical facility. That's where AirMedCare Network has you covered. When you join the AirMedCare Network, if such an emergency arises, you will not see a bill for air transport when flown by a participating AMCN provider. This peace of mind for your entire household can be yours beginning at the low, low price of $85 a year. AMCN helps transport more than 100,000 patients per year. And those of you who sign up right now for that protection will also receive a gift card from Visa or Amazon worth up to $50. Do the math. Just visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash reason, use the offer code reason, and bring more peace of mind to your entire family. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. All right. You ever notice uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis can't stop making local news that resonates with whatever national culture war issue is roiling at the time? Here are some headlines from just last week. DeSantis moves to ban transition care for transgender youth's Medicaid recipients. Special Olympics reverses vaccine requirement after DeSantis threatens $27.5 million fine. Ron DeSantis vetoes $35 million Tampa Bay Rays baseball complex after team's gun control tweet. Catherine, uh, let's start with that latter example, since I know you follow uh, the Tampa Bay Rays very closely. You're interested Absolutely. in their use of relief pitchers and whatnot. Uh, but no, since the libertarian criticism of such moves tends to generate a pretty common thread of counter criticism or counter reaction, as it did with the removal of Disney's special development district, which we talked about here on the podcast at great length um, and which at even greater length and editorial beautifulness, uh, Zach Weissmuller has a fantastic Reason TV documentary out about. Um, anyways, the counter argument is this. Who cares what the guy's motivations are? DeSantis is out there vetoing corporate welfare. I thought you libertarians cared about vetoing corporate welfare Fair, fair, fair. What say you, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I care about vetoing corporate welfare at least a lot more than I care about the Tampa Bay Rays, I guess. But, you know, and, and DeSantis did explicitly play on this, right? He said on Friday, I don't support giving taxpayer dollars to professional sports stadiums. Great. Sounds good. Enjoy those words. They are words that I like. I do not think that they reflect anything like a thoroughgoing statement of principle. I do not have any reason to believe that DeSantis is going to take one single step to remove taxpayer dollar support from sports sports or or equivalent things, right? Like convention centers, There's all kinds of stuff in this category. There's nothing special about sports stadiums. If he does, I guess I will like eat some kind of delicious baseball cap or something. But um, but in the meantime, this is just this is a great example, once again, of why of why we shouldn't have government subsidies for for stuff like this, because they there are always strings. There is no such thing as a free lunch. There are always, always, always strings. And once a system or an industry becomes dependent on government subsidies, taking away the subsidy is exactly the same thing as levying a fine. Um, again, my I agree with DeSantis. There should not be taxpayer support for professional sports stadiums, but I disagree with the broader uh, MO that he is demonstrating here and in so many other places, which is to selectively punish high profile offenders against DeSantis's sensibilities. Nick, building on that, <clears throat> assume for a moment that it's true. Uh, which is something that I think you've you've assumed out loud a couple of times that Donald Trump's influence in the Republican Party is kind of on the wane, and that he probably wouldn't win the 2024 uh, Republican nomination. Does uh, the rise of DeSantis and DeSantisism 
whatever that means. De Santeria, uh, I prefer to call it. De Santeria, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, does that show that the GOP has kind of mainstreamed the idea of using state power to punish companies whose specific politics they dislike? Yeah, yes. And I'll also add that, you know, one of the uh, curious cases involved here is that we're talking about this originally DeSantis, as he did with Disney, tied or his people around him tied the veto of this money or attack, you know, specifically to a, po a political position that um, DeSantis found, uh, you know, disturbing or, or contrary. Possibly the bigger question in the Florida budget season is that DeSantis signed a $110 billion budget, which is a record for the state of Florida. So, you have a guy and he's cutting taxes, he's doing this, he's doing that, and he's spending more. Um, and what you know is coming cl more clearly into view, and this is the way that uh, big state governors, who are people that Republicans like to run for presidential candidacies, you know, they are big government spenders. Um, you rarely will find somebody, you know, he, he could have taken a lot of uh, the surplus because a lot of states have, you know, higher than expected tax revenue and things like that. He could have made a sweeping small government gesture and said, you know what, we're giving back most of this. We're, maybe we're parking some of it in a rainy day fund, um, but we're giving it, most of it back to taxpayers and we're cutting regulations and restrictions on various types of business. But he didn't do that because, you know, when you buy votes, uh, the benefits are concentrated and the costs are spread around. So it re rarely makes sense for politicians, even ones who claim to be small government stalwarts and stuff like that, to actually just give money back to taxpayers. Yeah, we're back to tax cut and spend republicanism, which I suppose we haven't really gone away from anytime and, and, in recent yeah and it's not yeah. just republicans i mean you know democrats will also do the same thing when they could afford to yeah there's a uh, i was searching for um some news about this and i must have put in uh, the deepest wrongest search terms you can possibly imagine because i ended up on a website called floridapolitics.com which i had not previously heard of the headline is donald trump steals ron DeSantis's balls giveaway and I was like, all right, I will click. Fine, I will click. It turns out this is uh, this is this website is accusing Donald Trump of copying Ron DeSantis's uh, sort of fundraising move of of um, giving away golf balls with his name on them. But the the idea that we are now in the phase where it's not that DeSantis is is mimicking Trump, but maybe Trump is mimicking DeSantis and they're both just going to spiral downward into some kind of, you know, mutual self-parody that does strike me as what we're at, what we have ahead for the campaign season it's mimetic desires catherine all Ooh. the way down uh peter you're from florida and also you've covered the food and drug administration over the years sometimes uh wouldn't desantis who has very you know strong made strong separations between his policy and even president then president trump's wouldn't he be kind of awesome as the guy who was overseeing the federal public health bureaucracy? Well, he's certainly been better on COVID policy than a lot of other governors. Um, at the same time, I think the better way to have a good public health bureaucracy would, would be to not have the one that we have now and, uh, not, and maybe not to have an FDA as we know it really at all. Um, and the, and and this and in some ways a lot you know the the problems are deeper even at the CDC, um, but you you know you had somebody who is let's say not you know totally kind of uh, libertarian or or uh, you know like a deep like reason staffer type um, and but but a someone with free market inclinations at the FDA under Trump the FDA was run by Scott Gottlieb and Scott Gottlieb is a guy with a lot of good ideas. Um, uh, who understands sort of markets and who understands the ways in which regulators and bureaucracies um, uh, inhibit uh, good policy and sort of get bogged down. And he wrote a great book about CDC failures. Um, it was somewhat, I think, too defensive about the FDA. You can understand that. He's something of an institutionalist. But in any case, it was a little bit too defensive about the FDA. But even under someone like Scott Gottlieb, there were still serious problems at both agencies. And so I think it's just it's really hard even for um, a motivated and powerful executive uh, to actually go in there and do root and branch bureaucratic reform under pretty much any circumstances. Now, obviously, DeSantis is, a, I, I think, a sort of somewhat smarter 
operator of uh, of government than um, than Trump was. Uh, at the same time, you have to. It's not clear that that's where his attention would be. These things just end up being a, a lot more difficult than you think they're going to be up front. And and I also just wonder if if DeSantis really has like the the energy to put into something to a project like that, and like if he can like really make that sort of thing a priority for Republicans. So we've seen a huge amount of criticism of the FDA and CDC over the past couple of years. Much of it coming from the Republican Party. Have you seen a single piece of legislation that would dramatically overhaul the FDA or the CDC proposed by a Republican who's like, oh, they're bad and we should do something different? No, they're they're taking pot shots, but there's not like a legislative proposal to reform the statute that governs these agencies at all, because it's not clear to me that these folks actually have the sort of intellectual interest in doing policy reform. And DeSantis is, DeSantis is not an, is not a, like, is, is not just an idiot. At the same time, what he wants to do is he wants to make headlines for owning the libs. And every single time he puts forth one of these bills that gets him a lot of attention, he he gets headlines and he gets a right. And he and he's like, oh, the right loves me. But half of them, like I mean, half, some number of them are obviously not constitutional or just have legal problems and particular his like big tech speech bill. And so I just I am very skeptical that that he would be able to come in and manage the bureaucracy into obviously and substantially better results. Perhaps at the margins there would be some changes, but uh, I, I just don't see, I, I don't see sort of the depth of of interest there uh, leading to to deep reforms. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would just say we've already seen what it's like when someone is in the presidency who has some libertarian tendencies or has expressed some libertarianish views on some policies, but is not himself actually a libertarian at all. That's what the Trump administration was. And we saw him come in at the beginning and a lot of libertarians thought, hey, he's going to at least put some of our guys in and, you know, but Gorsuch. And I think but Gorsuch turned out to be good. He turned out to be good. He's being good so far. But um Almost all the rest of it was a, a sort of, you know, it ended up being a lost cause. And I think that that is because you have to be an ideologue about these things to see them through. There, There is no other way to have the kind of energy and commitment to do an unpopular and difficult thing unless you care about it uh, for real and not just to own the libs, not just to score a point right now, not just because somebody who was in your last conference call made a semi-compelling case to do the thing and you were like, OK, let's just do the thing. Um, otherwise, we're not going to get that. And I think DeSantis is very clearly going to be in that mold. He's, he Should he become president, he will very, very clearly put some people in some roles that might be better from a libertarian perspective than, say, Biden would have done. But that there's also a real danger, um, and we've seen this with many Republican presidents going way back, that a half-hearted privatization or deregulation effort can be worse than none at all because it gives it a bad name, it's messy, it's ugly, and it doesn't achieve any of the stated ends. By the same token, DeSantis is an actual governor, and he has a legislative history, which Trump did not. I mean, Trump was not even a good executive. Uh, much less but, chief but, but DeSantis's history is, you know, sh shows nothing to me as a person who is committed to small government and free markets and free thought that he would. I mean, he can do things, but I don't see a lot of evidence he's going to do the things I would like to see I, done. I, I agree with that, that but I'm just that saying being... that, you know, Trump, not everybody will be Trump. We don't know what it and it's probably telling that we don't know what his legislative agenda would revolve around. I find uh, what I find most disturbing about DeSantis is his willingness to punish specific actors because they disagreed with him and also to take things that were traditionally local decisions. Um, we're talking about education policy and, and you know whether it's mass mandates or what books can be taught and how local schools can teach whatever they want to teach and pulling it up to a higher level. And, you know, in the current case at the state level, um, I don't want to see that happening at the federal level. By the same token, Florida is growing. Uh, Florida has, you know, less land. You know, they has they, it's a less regulatory environment than uh, you know California or New York. Um, so there's conceivably, if he's coming in with some of that, he wouldn't be awful, and he would conceivably be more effective 
in overhauling bureaucracies, whichever way he decides to go than Trump was. So I think he's obviously going to have the capacity to be more effective than someone like Trump who had no previous governing experience. At the same time, what is DeSantis getting attention for? Why is he a superstar in the Republican Party right now? And what are the what are the incentives for him right now? What, what is he being encouraged to do and do more of? I would say that the reason that the right has celebrated him started with his response to COVID, but has more recently become about his the stuff like the big tech bill, which was obviously unconstitutional from the start and then was enjoined by a federal judge because it was un unconstitutional. And then his fight with Disney over Disney's tax status, which also is likely to be bound up in legal issues and is even the people who support DeSantis. Um, uh, Rich Lowry wrote a piece uh, for The New York Times uh, about a month ago uh, saying that he's sort of the future of the Republican Party post Trump. Um, and even Rich Lowry conceded uh, that DeSantis's uh, attack on Disney's um, uh, special tax status was explicitly retaliatory. And I, that's not re that much of a concession, given that DeSantis has said so himself. And so I think that as president and as a candidate, it's likely that he would, even if he is going to be, he, even if he has the capacity to be uh, someone who is more interested in the minutia of governance than President Trump was. And honestly, it'd be pretty hard to have less than Trump had. Um, but even if he, he was someone who had that capacity, it's not obvious that that's what he would actually pursue as a politician, as president, uh, simply because the Republican Party seems to like him not for his day-to-day -day kind of managerial governance, but much more for uh, for his because he fights, right? Because he because he has um, because he is using the power of government to wage a culture war. Yeah, it'll be Catherine, if uh, I may. He, you know, he we do, you know he he is running for re-election this year. Uh, we don't know what his campaign will be, and uh, exactly. And if it is just owning the libs, you know that may get him re-elected easily. I mean, he squeaked into office in two thousand eighteen, um, but. Um, you know, it should be telling. Like, is he going to wait until after he's reelected and then start campaigning on national issues or not? But I think that's a certain point where we'll know if he has any particular emphases. Catherine, um, pretty much everyone you included has stated uh, axioma as axiomatic um, that it's bad or creepy, wrong for government to single out an entity. Um, uh, in kind of retaliation against their political speech or activities. Can you um, actually not take that as axiomatic and explain why that is particularly bad from your point of view? I would be delighted to. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we have this um, we have this notion of what the what the First Amendment is for, right? And and you know, one thing that's great about it is that it's for a lot of things. It's it lets us do all kinds of stuff that um, basically, <laughs> slightly an overstatement, but basically all governments before ours uh, frequently had occasion to abridge or prohibit people from doing. Um, but the thing about governments is that they really want to control people. Man, they love that shit. They just really, really enjoy controlling what people think and say and do. And so um, one thing that's sort of interesting about the United States is because we have so many robust protections on the stuff that people can think and say and do, um, governments have to be wily. They have to be creative about ways to stop you from thinking and saying and doing the things that they don't like you to think and say and do. I'm going to keep saying those phrases over and over until they lose their meaning. And um, and so you wind up with these kind of very complicated and convoluted things like what if we create a special district for Disney to semi self-govern and then when Disney does something we hate, we can like take away the special charter of that special district and look, we didn't do anything wrong with respect to the clear kind of black letter of the First Amendment or of any of the relevant state law. It's fine. We just did this administrative thing. And, you know, I think intuitively we all understand. And in fact, DeSantis says the quiet part loud all the time, right? Like with this um, stadium thing. At first, it was just like a rumor that he was punishing the team for this tweet. And then he was like, oh, no, I'm definitely punishing the team for the tweet. 
Um, yeah, he wants them to know and he wants credit for having done it. Correct. But um, but at the same time, this is all via mechanisms that do not immediately, obviously, intuitively violate what we see of as protections for expression or what we think of as protections for expression. Um, but they do. Um, and this is, to me, one of the big cases for limited government. This is one big reason why I am a libertarian is because when the government is just in less business, when it is just up in less stuff, there are fewer occasions for this type of interference. And we don't have to keep making more and more sophisticated and subtle law to kind of parse out what is an interference with speech or expression and what isn't. You know, the, a simpler, smaller government makes that already far more difficult as it should be. Uh, but Nick, uh, uh, kind of to counter that or extend it, um, the uh, beat it prevailing to death, sentiment perhaps is the phrase you were looking for um there's a sentiment on the right that hey look you know sure we're getting government in your business but you've been getting your business in our government and it's been pretty one-sided the cathedral's coming at you and now it's uh you know that the, cathedral the is ambling like a transformer animal just chewing up all the landscape matt and spitting it out exactly yeah. Um, what do you say to that, that you, we need government power as a corrective to this sort of woke takeover of boardrooms that is pushing politics and conformity onto unsuspecting citizens out there? Yeah, I say mostly fuck you to that um, because you don't, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't fight fire with fire. Right. Or, you know, you can't uh, you can't vanquish darkness with more darkness. Um, and in the case of the Disney stuff, is that a it's joke about the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression? Yes, very much so. Uh, it's also, uh, yeah, you know, like uh, you know, if that's the case, then why didn't he denounce the Devil Rays for grooming, which I'm sure is going on somewhere? That's next. Yeah, you know, in Major League Baseball. Uh, no, this is, it's bullshit. You know, and it's like you, it, you know, it's one thing to make the argument that public companies should not be getting. Uh, special privileges that are not available to all companies or to all organizations. It's another specifically to say, and I think it was Peter who pointed this out, Disney, you know, made certain statements they lost. And then that's not enough for DeSantis. I mean, he's acting like Michael Corleone, uh, you know, in these instances where it's not enough to win, you have to destroy your enemies. Um, and that's just wrong. And also, it's not a bad thing for corporations. I mean, this you know, conservatives have such a short memory that they forget how, you know, how loudly they supported Citizens United because it allowed corporations and corporate entities, including unions, to voice whatever they wanted when it came to pol political elections, because you don't you don't lose your speech rights when you incorporate as, as a corporation. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are problems with, uh, you know, things like ESG and other kinds of uh, fads that are sweeping corporate organizations that should be confronted and dealt with. But I don't think you do that through political reprisals. That's the sign of a banana republic. Do you guys remember Mitch Daniels? Vaguely. <laughs> The Mitch great Daniels. Syrian American so, still has the poster. You, you mean a motorcycle like, yeah, ride like under to, her bunk bed. Next to the next to the poster. He's still so Mitch Daniels. Mitch Daniels Dreamy. is obviously a friend of reason, uh, has some association, spoke at our 50th anniversary event. But he also, once upon a time, was a rumored uh, presidential uh, contender. Um, didn't happen, obviously. It's very sad, but has a long history in Republican politics. And when he was when he was in the mix um, about 12 years ago in 2010, he said something that got a lot of attention, which was that he called for a truce in the culture wars. And now there were people at Reason who thought this was a great idea. There were other Republicans who thought it was a less great idea. In any case, what seems to be happening on the new right, uh, broadly construed, and with DeSantis in particular, is that they're just like, what if instead of having a truce in the culture wars, we went nuclear? And that's that but is also, the what if we had a truce on everything else? Right. Like what? Like because Daniel's case at that time was that the budget issues, the debt, the debt and deficit were so 
apocalyptic, that we were we were on the verge of ruin and that we simply had to set aside being jerks to each other about like diversity and inclusion initiatives for a hot minute until we got our money stuff sorted out. And I think like we we just did exactly the opposite. We we're like, what if we just all agree to pretend like all those debt and deficit things are not an issue? And also, like, maybe let's just all start agreeing that we should have trade barriers and you know, a bunch of other stuff as well. But like he, you know, he was he was the original. He was like the original David French. It was like still Mitch Daniels does nothing, even as the Tampa Bay Rays tweet bad tweets like uh <laughs> which like are we back in drag brunch discourse by the way did that somehow happen we this weekend we i miss i like suddenly drag was back in my just, feed and i guess it's just it's pride, i would come I keep come back keep, keep it touching grass in, on the weekend. in mind <laughs> with that in mind it is you know fascinating then to think about uh to signing a record large budget uh for spending yeah that's what i mean like he's like I am a I am a the soul yeah. of the Republican Party. Here is the biggest budget you've ever seen. I will be giving not one single thought to fiscal discipline. It is simply not my job. My job is to prevent trans kids from getting, you know, a state subsidized like chest binder or whatever. Thank God I'm here. Nick, isn't all of our talk here and the Daniels philia? Is that how, how you would say that? Um, that makes uh, it sound even yuckier than it is, and it's already it's, a little it's yucky. Pretty, I think Ron DeSantis is against that. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's groom, isn't that all a, for, an expression of, of naivete or a, above it all? Like you don't understand how politics works. I mean, politics being famously the organization of hatreds, right. of um, petty hatred. Shouldn't people who want to, shouldn't people who want to get stuff done figure out uh, how to? whip up, if not hatred, but recognize that people feel threatened and to say, hey, look, our way is the best way to, you know, either vanquish your perceived enemies or keep the threat from getting onto you. Yeah. No. So I, uh, I actually had this pivot. Yeah. Like I years ago, I used to think like Reason magazine in particular, but also libertarians in general, we should spend less time on like outrage stories, less time on the stuff that kind of gets people mad when it is small ball stuff that we should be we should be really focused, as Mitch Daniels wanted us to be on um, on these on these big issues, on the very big issues of like entitlements, government spending, war, like the big stuff. And I realized the same thing that everyone has realized in politics, which is that you need to bring people in, you need to get people on the team. And so I started blogging exclusively about Cheetos. And that is also the wrong approach, right? And it's like, there's a balance. Like, of course, it's fine to whip people up. Of course, it's fine to bring people into your into your movement, into your ideology, into your political agenda. But th- like, I do still think that it is fine to judge a politician or a movement or a publication on whether they show balance and perspective after they have done the attention grabbing thing. And that is the thing that DeSantis doesn't do. DeSantis just only does the attention grabbing thing and then lets the rest run on kind of a crappy statist autopilot. All right. We're going to get to our perhaps related uh, listener email of the week here in a moment. Uh, But first, a word from our friends at... The fantastic and fantabulous reason speakeasy live event series right here in New York City. I think we have someone on this podcast who can speak to what is the next reason speakeasy in New York. Where do people find out about it? How do they go? Nick, tell us. Something oh, yeah. About on uh, Monday, June 20th, uh, Brian Doherty, a senior editor at Reason, is going to be uh, uh, talking with me in a live setting at the Caveat Theater about his uh, forthcoming book, Dirty Pictures, which is a history of underground comics. Uh, uh, which is fascinating. Think of people like uh, Robert Crumb, Trina Robbins, and uh, Art Spiegelman, among others, who push the boundaries of good taste and free expression in an era when uh, censorship, outright censorship, was still a live threat. Uh, we're also going to be joined by Steve Heller, who's the former uh, art director of the New York Times Magazine, also started work at Screw Magazine, and is an absolute legend in kind of underground culture in New York and America for the past 50 years. So, um, you know, come out, go to reason.com slash events 
and you can get ticket information. It's 10 bucks. It's at the Caveat Theater on uh, the in the Lower East Side. It's going to be a fantastic time. Well, it's really fun to go to these Caveat Theaters of a fine venue. It's always better to see Nick live than even, you know, through uh, through a distance. Than a webcam. Um, and, uh, and through a webcam. Yeah. I don't look at the webcam. It's just too much truth. Um, but uh, also, do, does anyone have a sense of uh, where Doherty's beard is at these days? Oh, he's clean shaven. Oh, he's clean he shaven. copped I'm, out yet um, again. He did this when uh, his This Is Burning Man book came out, and we went on a joint book tour. I was uh, hawking Choice, The Best of Reason, an anthology, and he was hawking his uh, Burning Man book, and he showed up clean shaven with a trim little haircut wearing a suit and tie. And uh, I was wearing a jacket and t-shirt, a leather jacket and t-shirt. So it was, uh, he's done that again, I'm afraid, in anticipation um, of being out in the public. I know that you still feel some residual uh, sellout guilt from not wearing a saffron onesie and <laughs> a, uh, a spectacular, <laughs> spectacular mustache. Uh, all right. Uh, reminder to please uh, email your queries, which we read on a weekly basis, uh, to roundtable at reason. Dot com. This one comes from Jordan in Scotland. Is that a Scottish accent? That was really Ooh, good. Scotland. Man. Yeah, no, no, we heard uh, it. We got it the first time. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Please stop. Uh, who writes? <laughs> Should I do the whole thing? The Scott? Okay, no. Uh, you guys Please occasionally don't. talk about the Libertarian Party, and you might be aware of the recent convention. Might be aware of it. Jordan. Nick Gillespie was there, uh, which saw power go to one faction that many describe as quite alienating. This has led to many of the traditional libertarians leaving the party altogether. My question for you all is, do you think that the libertarian party is necessary for facilitating more libertarian representation in politics? If not, how do you see libertarian ideals grow in the traditional duopoly? Catherine, last week in a rare moment of weakness. Uh, you expressed uh, some emotion regarding Libertarian Party, so I'll give you a chance to backtrack. Uh, and uh, is the Libertarian Party necessary? No, definitely not necessary. Uh, you know, this is actually something that, you know, is a legitimate debate because, of course, many Americans do engage with politics, as I said last week, almost exclusively at the level of electoral politics in a, you know, presidential cycle. But... Um, but no, libertarian ideas can and do win out through all other kinds of mechanisms and have not won out through electoral mechanisms uh, in my lifetime, in the lifetime of the Libertarian Party, as far as I know. Well, not through electing individual people so much, uh, but occasionally right. through ballot initiatives. Right, but that's different. That's different. The LP doesn't do those. Elections. But the LP doesn't they do those, right? And so they if we're talking about. Some of them. Okay, but they are they are one one part of a coalition, and that coalition could very well exist without that part. So no, I do not think the LP is necessary. I think that um, you know it was a a reasonable experiment, uh, and I would I would say that it's not one that has been a roaring success. Whereas you know there really have been other libertarian victories, and we've talked about that most you know foremost among them the legalization of marijuana in many states. And again, while the LP was sometimes part of the coalitions that made that happen, not a leader. And not um, not necessarily a part of those coalitions that would have been missed. So I think if we're looking for what makes libertarianism mainstream, I don't think the LP is it. I will uh, suggest, you know, uh, people like Milton Friedman uh, chose not to work within the Libertarian Party. He uh, explicitly said that he had more juice within the Republican Party, and that's how he engaged electoral politics and policymaking on that level. Uh, somebody like Randy Barnett, the Georgetown Law professor who is generally regarded as one of the biggest eggheads within the libertarian legal movement, also has he's an anarchist, but he has nothing but contempt for the LP and prefers to work within the Republican Party as well. Um, having said that, I've also met a number of people, more than more than a handful uh, that trace their interest in libertarian ideas specifically to a long commercial that Ed Clark bought for the 1980 campaign where he laid out his campaign platform and kind of a libertarian vision. And, you know, I think the LP has played a significant role in expanding the consciousness and awareness of what libertarian ideas are and what policies can be. Uh, sometimes it's more successful than not. And it would be great to have a libertarian party that was both winning in terms of uh, actually standing candidates 
and and winning elections, but also kind of spreading the word in a way uh, that is positive and inclusive and persuasive to people who otherwise wouldn't hear about it. Suderman, um, are you going to admit once and for all that you prefer DC cocktail parties to ending the Fed and therefore are a regime libertarian? Yeah, the only parties I do are cocktail parties. I don't. Um, <laughs> I, I I just don't uh, particularly. That's your kind of partisanship. Yeah. I just don't particularly love political parties. I, I recognize that in the American political system, they're not going away. Um, but I think the incentives for political parties are mostly bad. And uh, the best way to advance libertarian ideals and ideas is through specific policy initiatives that one or more parties may or may not pick up or that some uh, that one or more individual politicians or activists outside of the realm of, you know, um, uh, congressional politics may, um, you know, may be working for. And uh, I, I just don't. I don't love political parties as a vehicle for advancing libertarian ideas and ideals. Peter Suderman is the George Washington of this podcast. A two-term uh, president? I... Yeah. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. that's what uh, I meant. Teeth. He I, has never my... chopped down a cherry tree. No, he no, did chop down a cherry no, tree. He didn't lie about it's it. It's because Sorry. I distill my own apple brandy. See? It's all coming together. Uh, I don't actually. And I wish I did. But George Washington's apple brandy slaves. is delicious. We do have um, in an upcoming issue of Reason Magazine um, a, I guess it's not quite an admission of home distilling, but it is a hint that perhaps some home distilling is occurring. And uh, I will, for anyone who has listened this far, uh, tweet me your guesses about who, who the home distiller is on staff, if not Peter Suderman. And I will probably not tell you whether or not you're right. Uh, you know, one good. of the uh, things about the Libertarian Party convention in Reno, the Reno Reset, the uh, eminence gris behind it all, Michael Heiss, the founder of the Mises Caucus, has a very specific strategy about the LP being used in order to further his vision of libertarian ideas. <clears throat> which is less about standing people for office or hold, you know, uh, running people for office at every level, in every race, in every state. And it is specifically about being informational and building a cadre of people who are like-minded, who start to move from local areas of influence to bigger and bigger ones. So that is the reigning philosophy of the Mises Caucus. Angela McArdle, the new chair uh, is also a believer in that strategy. And we'll see because it actually marks something of a sea change from the past, if not all 50 years for a good chunk of the LP history, where it was less about activism and a kind of identity building and more about actually trying to run people for office, in which it does not have a very good track record of. I guess my answer to the question is um, there is no one true way, man. You know, there's lots of different ways to uh, to approach the goal, and I don't necessarily uh, uh, elevate one above the other in terms of other people's actions. Um, and so, I'm happy that there's a Libertarian Party out there um, doing things, and uh, and I, generally speaking, wish them success without ever uh, belonging to them. Um, and I often vote for their candidates, and uh, and I think it's fine that they keep uh, doing it. I also don't have a great expectation that that is going to lead to some uh, miraculous breakthrough. It's just one of many different ways that uh, that libertarianism uh, intersects with things. And I should also um, uh, mention here that we're going to get a uh, see pretty soon uh, um, a uh, a very uh, good documentary from Reason TV about uh, the Libertarian Party convention in Reno and how it all went down. Um, so uh, uh, stay tuned for that. I'm sure it's going to be uh, very, very interesting. Looking forward to seeing it myself. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the White House last week announcing that President Joe Biden, remember him, uh, is traveling this month to Saudi Arabia. It's Catherine's favorite place. She knows a lot about it. Uh, he's going there to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about doing something, anything uh, to lower gas prices, which have shot upward this week. I think the last number is $4.86 per gallon on average nationwide. It's not just California. It's everywhere. That's up around 70% from a year ago. 
There are reasons to suspect that those prices will continue shooting upward over the summer as people travel and as the war in Ukraine drags on with the big Russia producer, gas producer of Russia. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, you may recall, uh, was deemed responsible for the 2018 murder and dismemberment of dissident Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, dissident from Saudi Arabia, not dissident from the Washington Post. Candidate Joe Biden had said on the campaign trail that he would make the authoritarian kingdom, quote, pay the price for that murder and show them to be the pariah that they are, adding that there's very little social redeeming value in the present government in Saudi Arabia, end quote. Now he's going there to kiss the ring and say, produce more oil, pretty please. Uh, Peter, are we ever going to have a president of the United States who doesn't kiss Saudi behind? Well, I think that's we're not going to have one in the next couple of years. I mean, what if you're asking me to predict the next several U.S. presidents, which it sounds like is is the actual uh, substance of that question. Look, the U.S. Saudi relationship goes back a long time. Um, it's complicated. Uh, and what every president finds is that when they walk into the office, no matter what that plans they bring with them themselves, it it stays complicated, right? Like Joe Biden on the campaign trail was like the Saudis killed a Washington Post journalist. Disclosure, my wife works in the Washington Post, Post opinion section where uh, Khashoggi was uh, uh, was a writer. Um, and Biden was like, I, I'm going, you know, we're going to treat them accordingly. And now there's an energy crisis and the price of gasoline is going up. And Biden's like, well, you know, let's schedule a visit. That tells you what the imperatives are going to be, the political imperatives for a president. And that they're not going to be able to sort of they're not going to be able to necessarily do the thing that they want to do, that they promise to do on the campaign trail, because there are always going to be uh, political incentives uh, to do something else, um, because in fact Saudi Arabia does control an awful lot of oil, and there's like that's not going to change in the next ten years or the next twenty years, and uh, and and as a result, that is going to require um, some sort of relationship, whether it is uh, more or less hostile, whether it is uh, like we're going to we are going to end up using Saudi Saudi oil. Um, to some extent, uh, and that is going to be something that is that has a lot of value in in geopolitics. And no president being mad up front is going to sort of undo that. As much as I mean, I you know, it's it seems pretty clear to me that the Saudis are um, are in fact guilty of killing a Washington Post journalist, and that is extremely bad. And we should factor that into our relationship. Um, but it's very obviously just very difficult for uh, for a president to do. Catherine, uh, president does have some input on energy policy. I could have sworn, really could have sworn that it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about how America finally uh, achieved energy independence and that that was a good thing and that we didn't have to pay so much attention. Um, what policies do you think that Biden has done uh, well or poorly regarding uh, America's own energy production and how that might affect what it needs to do in the world? Yeah, I mean, there has been uh, a, a concerted effort to get, um, you know, to reduce production of fossil fuels. And the thing is that um, there's a kind of a unilateral disarmament problem here in part. So in the U.S., when Democrats take power, they do all the things they can do around the edges without making any actual substantive changes to reduce U.S. Um, energy output from fossil fuels. And so this, you know, not just U.S., but also Canada, um, the Keystone Pipeline obviously has been a point of contention, as has fracking, offshore drilling uh, just off the coast of the U.S. These are all things where executives can kind of make tweaks without going through the whole rigmarole of the legislative process. Um, that's bad because it would be much better to let some of these um, markets work on their own, including respond to price mechanisms. So you can't immediately rapidly spin up a lot of these types of operations, right? Like you know, offshore oil drilling is something that you, you have to kind of <laughs> commit to. And when gas prices were low, there were a bunch of these things which we could theoretically produce 
you know, we could theoretically produce more of our energy domestically, but it didn't become, you know, it wasn't worthwhile to do it because gas prices were low. And so some of those projects were retired for market reasons, but others were retired because the cost of getting those going was so dramatically increased by regulation, not just, you know, explicit bans, but also environmental regulation and other things like that. Um, you know, this this is this is not great. And this is how we get in this circumstance when we become over-reliant on a single vector or a limited number of vectors for something that is important, um, that isn't typically a good thing for the market. We, of course, have seen this with baby formula. It's not that this the baby formula thing, just like the energy prices thing, it's not a market failure. They're government failures. We regulatorily diminished all of the other players in the market or killed them. And then we were shocked when something went wrong with the major player and the prices went up and the supply went down. This is how markets work. Um, and when governments interfere in them and, and, you know, restrict the number of players in the market, of course, you're going to get supply disruptions. Of course, you're going to get price increases. So Biden could be doing that. Um, that would make things better. But he but he won't. And um, neither will a Republican. If a Republican gets into office, that Republican will do they will simply reverse the stuff that Biden did while not fundamentally changing the underlying dynamic. You know, Biden ran Biden ran on an explicit promise to reduce the U.S. You know, use and production of fossil fuels uh, when early on one of his first big executive orders types things, environmentalists like Bill McKibben, in other words, this was in late January of 2021, were lauding all of the steps he took to shut down future production, existing and future production of fossil fuels. So this is, you know, this is directly attributable not just to, uh, you know, world global supply chain issues because of COVID and the comeback after COVID and all of that, but to the Biden administration. Um, and he should own it. You know, when he goes to Saudi Arabia to beg for more oil and gas, you you know, Saudi Arabia is a terrible regime, but at least they are an ally of ours and we are doing their bidding as despicable as it is and helping them bomb the shit out of Yemen. Um, but he's also going to uh, Venezuela and the Biden administration has re re uh, relaxed sanctions against Venezuelan oil production. Um, so the hypocrisy here should be front and center, and it should not just be a got you, but going forward, what we need is an energy policy that is flexible and able to ramp up and ramp down depending on our needs. And that is specifically something that environmentalists who pushed for Biden and got what they wanted in Biden were against. Um, and this stuff, it takes you know years to bring stuff online. And when you come in and you signal immediately that you're shutting down a lot of you know possible future activity, you get this kind of uh, fragility in, in American oil supply. So, you know, welcome to the real world. Welcome to the world of real politics, Joe Biden. It is somewhat notable that the environmentalists class has for years been saying uh, that that what we really need is to be paying more for energy and in particular for gasoline. Right. This was this was an explicit argument for at least a decade and maybe going back three decades is that gas is too cheap. Energy is too cheap. And that's, you know, there are externalities here. And so we need to reprice these things so that people are paying more for them. And now the Democratic Party is in control of both chambers of Congress and the White House. The Democratic Party has been sort of the, the political party of the environmentalist left, has been the party that has uh, that has most championed more expensive energy. And now that we've got it, they're like, oh, wait, that's a big problem. It's bad. We shouldn't have that. It also uh, points to a truism, I think, in international relations, which is that um, whether it's war or whether it's uh, economic sanctions, that type of targeted, I want to inflict pain on another country, which is what well, the United States and most of the world is doing towards Russia, a big oil producer right now, uh, requires inevitably uh, deals with the devil. Um, this is why suddenly, you know, I thought sanctions, that's, for, that's a thing we do for Venezuela because they're bad too. Um, Saudi Arabia is certainly bad. In many ways, Saudi Arabia is, is you know, is going to make anybody's top five of just an absolutely tyrannical and terrible country. Um, and that's what happens. So if you're going to crack down one on one country over there, turns out you got to ease up on this one over here. And it's one of many arguments for maybe um, don't use the stick. 
as much in general. And, you right. know, uh, also though, a- this is a leverage point. Saudi Arabia is, you know, a despotic regime and everything like that. But MBS is, believe it or not, a reformer. And, uh, you know, between what Trump did with the Abraham Accords and whatnot, which which created the possibility of a Saudi Arabia-Israeli uh, connection, that would be meaningful and help bring stability to the region. Israel is already working with UAE and other players in the region. Uh, you know, if if Biden was actually motivated to do this, it could also help spur along some of the reforms that MBS is pushing to modernize Saudi Arabia. It's you know, it's it, the, the Khashoggi incident is like absolutely disgusting and despotic, but that it's not uncommon. Right. In the, the countries that we deal with and the way the American government acts to kill people that they you know disfavor for various reasons. And again, if Biden, this is, you know, to me. It seems redolent of a Jimmy Carter kind of mentality where it's you want to, you know, put certain types of uh, incentives or certain types of values at the front and center of foreign policy in a way that actually undermines not only us getting what we need in the moment, but also making the world a better, more integrated place that ultimately is more liberal. I want to actually just push back real quick on the like MBS is a reformer like he is, I guess. Um, but first of all, there's definitely the dismemberment thing, which we should focus on. Why? Also, wait, wait, uh, but seriously, on... you're not saying that all Let of- her finish. Let well, her finish. Okay. Let her okay. finish. You made your point. I'm Let not, her finish. Not- um, the uh, you know, Reason's own Christian Britschke actually did a post last week about something else that MBS is up to, which is building in the desert a two mile long single skyscraper. Now, now two skyscrapers, I guess, two skyscraper city that is perfectly linear. It's called the line. And it's it's the most spectacular example of the centralizers delusion of this kind of notion that we can build our way to like modernity. We can somehow like bring the future by dropping this, you know, one person's brain fart into the desert. It's a little like the original plans for Epcot. It's a little like the original plans for Epcot, probably said Florida man. And I just, you know, I think the this this is what happens when you have a potentate. This is what happens when you have a crown prince, and especially one who has perhaps literally gotten away with murder. His form of reform is going to contain all of these sort of authoritarian, inefficient, non-market nightmares. And there's no particular reason. So it's his Mar-a-Lago. No, it's way, I mean, way seriously. worse. No, I mean, it's I'm, much worse. No, no, but who cares, right? Who cares? And the question is like, do we do we engage despotic regimes and try to change them, or do we sanction them and say, you know what, you barbarically killed one person? And I'm person. obviously pro engagement. Um, and Khashoggi, I- by the way, was also involved with the Saudi Arabian government and things like that. The the situation is more complicated than it appears. And all I'm saying is, you know, if Biden was smart, he would be doing things that would get more out of our ongoing relationship with Saudi Arabia, I, that's which he's not going to do. The, under that uh, rubric, I think all presidents have been failures. I don't think that we've gotten anything meaningful hey, out of amen, Saudi Arabia brother. for uh, <laughs> 75 years. All right, let's move to our end of uh, podcast, what we have been consuming in the cultural arena. Catherine, why don't you lead off? Sure. I, uh, for reasons that will also become clear in the next issue of the magazine, was reading some of Ayn Rand's letters because that's where I am at spiritually right now. So you can read into that uh, what you like. There is a very, very good collection of her letters that was published by uh, Michael Berliner. Um, called The Letters of Ayn Rand. But the one I was looking for actually wasn't in that collection. Um, it was on uh, the Ayn Rand Institute's website. They have uh, a bunch of um, batches of her unpublished letters that appear. Uh, I was looking for something with uh, with respect to the paper shortages that accompanied the printing of The Fountainhead. And you can, um, as I say, read about that in my editor's note in the next issue. But uh, I did come across this really delightful little um, letter from a fan in Hawaii. Uh, It was written in 1980. I think she died shortly thereafter, maybe 83, 85, something like that. Um, So this is fairly late in her life. Um, Someone is trying to adapt the book Anthem. And she writes, uh, 
I'm glad to hear there are young Randians in Hawaii, but you make a mistake in associating the libertarians with me. They are my enemies and have nothing to do with my philosophy except for occasional attempts to plagiarize it. And then she says, the reason for my disapproval of this adaptation is that I cannot stand the thought of someone monkeying around with my material. My work means too much to me. If you remember the climax of the fountainhead, I'm sure you will understand this. So this is basically Ayn Rand responding to fan mail by telling all libertarians to go kick rocks and also like sort of vaguely threatening maybe to like bomb an adaptation of Anthem in Hawaii. Um, every letter is like this. I She is the most intense correspondent you could possibly imagine. And I really like if you just want like a little bit of like bile, like a little, just a little rage in your day. Just the letters of Ayn Rand. What, just dip in when there, is that, dip your toe When in. is that from? Do you remember or was it clear? This letter? Yeah. It was written in 1980. Um, and it's, you know, it's just like the cast of characters, like a, the one person involved in this Hawaii exchange is the, uh, the president of the Dole Pineapple Company, who has like an interesting role in the founding of a fee like that. And it's just delightful. Like, uh, even if you are not, uh, as I am in way too deep on both this movement and this writer, um, just just a really fine, high level, spicy letter writing. Uh, and I recommend it to you. Nick, what have you been considering? Uh, I watched the uh, Norm MacDonald uh, special that was on uh, Netflix. The last one, uh, Norm MacDonald, Nothing Special, which came out in the past couple of weeks. And this was something he recorded during the lockdown directly into a kind of camera and microphone. Uh, and it is followed. It's about 50 minutes long. And then there's a, a kind of roundtable, including Conan O'Brien, Dave Chappelle, David Spade, uh, Molly Shannon, and a couple of other people who worked with him talking about his legacy. Um, I am sorry to uh, report that it's not a particularly good uh, send off for Norm MacDonald, who I think uh, was a tremendous comedian, uh, comedian and comic presence, uh, who especially as he got older and I guess sicker, which he was keeping hidden from even his closest friends, uh, he uh, became much more kind of... Uh, uh, thoughtful and uh, he ruminated a lot more on the meaning of life and of uh, actually of Christianity as well as kind of being kind to people, which is something since his humor is often quite uh, stark and nasty. Uh, but nothing special on Netflix. Uh, it's worth a look. But uh, in the end, I don't think it was the uh, the send off, uh, you know, that he deserved. Who was the funniest uh, 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 on the panel? Uh you know, I don't know that it that quite gets to it because they were all kind of serioso uh, about it all with, for understandable reasons. But um, in the end, I find, you know, somebody like Dave Chappelle, uh, I think, has a depth to his kind of engagement with uh, comedy as well as American culture that uh, stood out. Peter, what did you uh, consume? Uh, I watched... Uh, Top Gun Maverick. Actually, we saw it two weekends ago, but I want to talk about it this week because we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet. And it has become something of a uh, cultural and box office phenomenon. Um, it had a record-breaking opening weekend and a, a really surprisingly robust second weekend. People are actually seeing this one uh, multiple times, which is unusual, uh, at least for the last couple of years since COVID uh, shuttered a lot of movie theaters. Um, this movie has become a kind of a cause for some people, and because it's because because it has become a cause, it has also become an argument with people talking about how it represents a stand against China because Cruz wore a Taiwan patch on his jacket and you know gave basically gave his okay to it not playing in China. The Chinese um, financier Tencent backed out of the project. Uh, people have also sort of. Uh, you know, uh, cast it as a return to hope for Americans because older viewers actually seem to be driving the box office for the first time in several years. They basically haven't been going to movies uh, uh, since COVID. I do think it's it's good news for Hollywood. It's good news for people like me who love movies and particularly uh, people who like watching movies in movie theaters. It's big, crowd-pleasing, basically a satisfying film, if uh, somewhat formulaic at the story level. But the flight photography is really and truly astounding. Um, if you if you want to see, like, 
like a blockbuster that actually goes the extra mile with its action sequences, many extra miles in, in this case, um, right? Like they put Tom Cruise and his co-stars in F-18s and actually shot them there. And so you get to see the G-forces like actually pulling on their bodies. They're all that background, the sky, the the ground, you know, the mountains that you see around them. That's real stuff. They actually at one point had Tom Cruise in an F-18 flying 50 feet above the ground, uh, kicking up dust. It was like so low that it kicked up dust on the desert floor. An F-18 is about 50 feet wide. So they were flying one airplane width above the ground for a sequence. It's really pretty incredible just to to watch, even if I think the rest of the movie, the stuff that takes place not in airplanes, is kind of generic and just okay. Um, you know, and so I get how this kind of represents a desire amongst a lot of people to return to some sort of pre-COVID or maybe, I don't know, even like pre-Trump, pre-culture war normal, but... There's really, I think there's like sort of too much nostalgia at work, both in the movie and in sort of the cause around it. It's it's ultimately, it's just a movie, a pretty good one, maybe not a great one. I enjoyed it. Um, and I think people are sort of, people are, it, like it does tell you that people are looking for something to believe in right now. And there's just not a lot out there because like what people are glomming onto is like, hey, we put Tom Cruise in a fighter jet and that's pretty cool. Go America. Is he okay. on the outside of the planes like he was in Mission Impossible? <laughs> no, so, so in one of the Mission Impossible movies, they actually did tie him to, I believe it was a C-130, anyway, one of these big cargo jets. And they just, like, there's shots that are outside the plane and he's hanging on. And you know how they shot that was they tied him to the outside of a plane and just let him let him go like they 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 shot like a bunch of versions of this so for like a day or two all tom cruise did was get tied to an airplane and the airplane would lift off they'd shoot for a couple of minutes land and then they'd like reset and do it again and this is i mean there is like something really sort of wonderful about tom cruise aging movie star and he's doing stuff like hanging outside the Burj Khalifa, being tied to a cargo plane as it, you know, as it uh, lifts into the air. And um, in one of the mission, the most recent Mission Impossible film, he does a he does a halo jump that he actually did for real. So it's a low altitude parachute jump where he had to jump out and have a fight in mid mid air before the parachutes uh, get get launched while the camera guy is falling backwards and trying to film all of this. And they had to choreograph all of this stuff. It's really like as a technical sort of stunt achievement, it's very impressive. On the other hand, I'm not sure this this is like the solution to like your malaise. Yeah, that's really going to save Hollywood. It seems to be the solution to the malaise of like a lot of women in my various feeds, like the... Well, there's Lady a beach appreciation. Fo- uh, you know, sorry, movie. there's girls, a beach football but, uh, scene. Uh, keep yeah. waiting. Yeah. Keep waiting, ladies. Is shirtless. Can we not step over the lady as she no. talks about the ladies? It's all right. Movie. Go, it's Catherine. how it is. No, I. I mean, I. I. It, I am not the target lady of the like the mustachioed muscle gentleman is not my preferred type. I'm. I'm an ectomorph gal, but I do think that. Uh, there's more about this movie in my social media than any other movie full of the handsome men than has been true in a long time. So for what that's worth. Are these the daughters of Rock Hudson fans, I'm assuming? I mean, it's going to be a long wait, ladies. Uh, this uh, this is my uh, choice too, and maybe I could speak to that. I have, uh, being a lady myself, um, I uh, I don't recall <laughs> seeing being in a movie uh, that uh, where it was just so obviously cathartic for the people inside of the theater, and I think it's like a cathartic about uh, the American Empire. Like the, we don't even know who the enemy is in this movie, by the way. Like it's just just it's a completely, just like the rogue state or something, right? It's a like, rogue state that has parked F-14s in a hangar somewhere and a lot of tough canyons. Um, totally bizarre. Like, oh, well, let's, we need we just need to go blow that up because they might do something. Um, uh, so the, the catharsis, I think, and the lady stuff is is part of it. It's that. Um, it's this sort of, you know, this happened. I'm I'm going to be 54 soon. This came out when I was 18, right? Like this is two thirds of a lifetime ago for a lot of people in the theater. And uh, and the best part is the uh, the laughter uh, that comes after the one second sex scene. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Oh, so he's, oh yeah. no! So he's really uh, no, it's not he's like taking that. extends or something, right? 
No, it's more it's more that uh, that like it's people realize that we don't have sex scenes in Hollywood anymore. And it's certainly not in like a, a big movies like this. But the love story is is fantastic. I mean, I'm just saying this because I'm crushing pretty hard on Jennifer Connelly, like half of America right now. Uh, but also like it's a middle aged like post divorce type of love story. And, uh, and there's something kind of uh, interesting about it, but it, I think there's like, it is the, the movie where older Gen X people got back into the theater. Um, and they might be slightly embarrassed at themselves. Cause it's like, it's fucking top gun. Do we like, did we really miss Maverick? I don't really think that we missed Maverick in any meaningful sense. I saw a tiny snippet cause they're obviously playing the original top gun on every available cable channel right now. Um, and though I liked that top gun uh, at the time, it is pretty silly, uh, of a movie, uh, but people like screw it. I'm going there anyways. I want to see the big planes and things moving around fast. Um, and it's like post COVID there's just a bunch of stuff to it. Like the, the response to the movie has less to do with the movie somehow than almost anything I've seen, which is really interesting. So I, I, I can't recommend highly enough to go into a theater and just enjoy the weird response that maybe you're part of, or maybe that you're observing out there. Um, uh, it's a it's a very interesting experience, um, and uh, you know maybe it's just maybe it's just. Maybe I think it's going to uh, take a sequel to Cocktail, Tom Cruise's finest movie, to get me in the theater mm-hmm. to to see Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think I talked about uh, this on this podcast. Like I watched Risky Business on an airplane not that long ago oh, for wow. the first time, and I that and you stormed the cockpit. I almost, I, if I had had my box cutter with me, I would have. Well, thank soon. goodness Sorry. for the TSA. Too uh, soon. Yeah, the, uh, the, the heroism in this movie is that uh, uh, Tom Cruise actually takes his shirt off and, and everyone's like, oh, how's that going to be? How's that going to go for everybody? Um, and like, this is and a, gauges- a golden age of, you know, middle age uh, stars, female and male. I mean, this was the takeaway from Matrix Resurrections as well that uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie on Moss look great. I'm sorry that they didn't bring in, uh, what was, who was the love interest? Uh, Kelly, uh, what's her name in Top Gun? Yeah. Kelly McGillis. McGillis. Yeah, like, Kelly you McGillis. know, she was not available. That's disappointing. She was um, not asked and she has asked. blamed her middle age look for that, is her reasoning? She's not Meanwhile, wrong about that at all. Matt Welsh um, is just out here accumulating his list of lady fan favorites. Just for those of you keeping track at home, we now have Jennifer Connelly and Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's another one. We'll wait one. for the third. We'll wait there's for the third a couple in, in future my heart, episodes. But, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's healthy, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. That's all the health we have time for. Uh, although, <laughs> uh, speaking of health, wow. Segue much, Nick. Uh, Soho Forum debate is happening this week in New York. Oh, it's happening it's tomorrow about, about uh, whether or not doctors are responsible for the opioid epidemic. Uh, and it features a, uh, a doctor from Georgetown uh, School of Public Health, as well as Cato Institute, uh, Dr. Jeff Singer. Uh, go to reason.com slash events and uh, you can buy tickets. It's at the Sheen Center on Bleecker Street in Manhattan. Awesome. Uh, thank you for listening. Go to all of our podcasts at reason.com slash podcasts. And if you like our activities here at the Reason Foundation, think about supporting us with your monies. Uh, go to reason.com slash donate. Okay. See you next week or out in about in New York City all this week and next. Okay. Goodbye.